It will be enough for many to say that I had passed a night with a maniac. What other term, it will be said, could be applied to such a being? A man who reminds himself that he is married by pretending not to be married? A man who tries to covet his own goods instead of his neighbor's? On this, I have but one word to say, and I feel it of my honor to say it, though no one understands. I believe the maniac was one of those who do not merely come, but are sent. Sent like a great gale upon ships by him who made his angels winds and his messengers a flaming fire. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. On today's episode, we will be discussing the second chapter of book two of G.K. Chesterton's comedic novel, Man Alive, The Two Curates, or The Burglary Charge. Grace, it's so good to see you. It's been a couple weeks. Yeah. Good to be back. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Yay. Happy Easter to everyone listening. Oh my goodness. I've been eating so much chocolate. Yay. I, have... I actually have not. I need to up my game. I know. Ooh, I've been what is that, Grace? Of us. I have these like Easter egg M&Ms that have the peanut butter in them. Yum. So good. Too peanut good. M&Ms are some of my favorite. That's such a good combo. Peanuts mm-hmm. and chocolate. I um. You know, I take it back. I did eat a couple of those little Reese's peanut butter eggs on Easter. My sister-in-law is so good at providing treats on on holidays, but nice. Um, I need to. I probably should go out to the store and buy the discounted Easter chocolate right now because, like Christmas, everybody is like, "Okay, Easter's over, Christmas is over," and then everything is immediately on sale. Even though it's and all the Catholics are like, whoop, whoop. <laughs> the season is just beginning. I'm I actually I, I don't know. I weirdly feel like I don't deserve Easter this year because Lent was so weird for me. Yeah. Like I'm okay, like, listen, did I do anything to get enough <laughs> for your Lent? Let's be real. <laughs> I know, but it felt like so unfocused. It was just like mm, I feel muddling that. through. But anyway. Easter is a wonderful gift that none of us deserved in the first place. So maybe this is exactly how I'm supposed to feel. Um, Mm. Pretty amazing. We we spent it in Wisconsin and um, got to visit the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe there, which is gorgeous. Um, And yeah, it was beautiful. We missed... Um, Holy Angels, our, our Byzantine Catholic mm-hmm. parish, and your quote that you read at the beginning reminded me of it because there's this prayer that we say at the, at the end of liturgy, um, uh, and it talks about the angels being like flaming fire, and mm-hmm. so I think uh, Chesterton had some insight into the Christian world when he when he used this particular phrasing in man alive for sure I love it so good did you do Easter in Baton Rouge I did yeah so I um I teach RCIA at my parish um and so we had we had I think six people be baptized um a lot of them were college students some of them were a little bit older um but it was so beautiful we had a ton of um catechumens as well that were being received from other Christian denominations but um it was it was a such a beautiful liturgy and the ones who were baptized were just like glowing. We we have one of those like in-ground baptismal fonts, you know, where people yeah. get dunked like full immersion, <laughs> but we can't Do they do, actually? Oh. So they normally do, but we can't because of COVID, like the water, I don't know, they like make us <laughs> Basically they have to like go down into the drained font and then okay. they, like pour giant they get pitchers poured of over. water. Yeah. Okay. So it's still a lot of water, but it's like, it also like the baptismal font normally when it's filled is like warmed, but because it wasn't filled, the pitcher water was like really cold. And so oh, they no. were like reacting to the cold water. 
and it's like is that the spirit or the icy water (laughs) well there's there's the one girl there's she was so cute and what's hilarious is her sister was baptized last year and then her sister was her her godmother this year um but both of them the same thing happened to them where they got the giggles like really bad when they were like in the font and so they were like standing down in there and this year the girl father andrew goes to like pour the pitcher over her head to baptize you in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit he does it like three times you know yeah and he she was laughing so hard and like reacted to the water so much that he starts laughing and like oh no my pastor is like when he's preaching and when he's like leading liturgy he's like very serious but he, when he gets the giggles, like he cannot stop. And it's really funny. So like <laughs> he starts laughing, he can't handle it. So he starts laughing. And I'm just thinking in my head, like, oh my say goodness. the words, say the words, say the words. Cause he like, didn't get the, he almost didn't get the whole like formula oh out, my you know, gosh, that is and hilarious. So he's like, he's like laughing and he can't like breathe. And he's like, Holy spirit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so funny but they were that just laughing too and everyone was laughing in the church and it was just like so joyful and exciting and I don't know that is beautiful it was so oh, I love seeing but... people come into the church we didn't um we did not see that this year because we were kind of attending it long story short we were attending kind of like across the street from this parish that my brother goes to anyway Mm -hmm. um but two years ago two easters ago we had multiple friends come into the church and it was so special that's um man baptism is amazing yeah I was excited we had so many being baptized yeah um yeah that is really exciting it was really, really great. Also, I got super excited because I kind of planned this, but didn't plan it out really meticulously. But, you know, I've been reading through the Lord of the Rings for yeah, Lent yeah. and I timed it perfectly to where when I got up on Friday morning, I got up really early to drive to New Orleans to do the traditional walk of the nine churches. Have I told you about that? Yeah, you mentioned so, it. To, well, you haven't on the podcast, but you've mentioned okay. it to me. Yeah. So, so yeah, we visit, it's basically a novena. So we go to nine churches, um, old, beautiful, historic churches in New Orleans. They're all close enough to walk to each other. And it's a good Friday thing. And there's all kinds of people in the streets that are doing it. So this year the churches were open last year, of course they were closed and it was really awesome to be able to do that. But I timed it perfectly to where when I got up in the morning and I got in the car to drive to New Orleans, I was on the passage in the Lord of the Rings um, when I, I guess, spoiler alert, should I tell people, have you read Lord of the Rings? I don't know. Um, When the thing that is important that happens, happens. Um, And it's very Good Friday. You can spoil it. (laughs) The ring is destroyed on Good Friday. And so it was amazing. Really awesome. Cause like I, like I said, I kind of planned it that way, but I like didn't really map out the days of like what I was listening to and whatever. So it just actually ended up working out that way. And it was really great. That is so So. awesome. That's, I, I really like your tradition of doing that this year. I wasn't, I don't know. I wasn't up for it, but David and I decided that when our baby is born, we're going to, um, start working through reading, um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings to the baby because um, once they're a little older, it's going to be too scary and yeah, like yeah. too much for a few years. Like uh-huh. I feel like they're you can either read it to them when they're babies and they don't really know what's going on <laughs> and we can just enjoy it. Yeah. Or yeah. then you have to kind of wait when they're of school age mm-hmm. and even then kind of judge it because mm-hmm. it is it is quite it's scary in some places. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so we're going to read through those together when the baby comes and like, just enjoy them together again at that point. I'm, I'm ready. It's, I think the Lord of the Rings is one of those books that I will continue rereading every few years of my life. It's so rich. It's so rich. There's just, there's so much goodness to kind of glean from it and different things strike me every time I read it. So yeah. Anyways. Truly enjoyable. Yeah. So have you been reading anything actually other than Lord of the Rings? Are you just finishing up Lord of the Rings? Really just finishing up Lord of the Rings. Um, I wrote in the notes here that like, and I also, this is something that I try to read every year as well, but there's, 
in the office of readings and the liturgy of the hours for um holy saturday have you read that ancient homily that's always in the office of readings on holy saturday i don't think i did this year i may have read it before it is so beautiful i encourage everybody out there to look it up it's not very long it's very easy to read um but it's it's ancient i think it's from gosh i don't even know like the two or three hundreds or something like that maybe it um who, who wrote I think it? it's somebody of sardis Okay. Uh, Melito or something of Sardis, possibly. I don't remember okay. when he was. Maybe, maybe I'm getting the date wrong, but it's ancient. Um, and it is this beautiful meditation on what is happening when Christ has died and is descending to the place of the dead to release the souls um, who have waited there for centuries for him. You know. Wow. And it is so beautiful and. Um, it's just so like inspiring and it just mm. reminds you of the heart of the whole mystery and like what Christ has come to do and the things that he has done. And it's just, it's, it's one of those that is a classic at this point. I see people post it every year now on social media, like just yeah. reminding people like, Hey, read it. Cause all the priests and, and deacons around the world are reading it every Holy Saturday because it's part of the office of readings, but right. um, it's good for all of us, I think to read. So that's awesome. Highly recommend. Beautiful. How about well, you? Um, I'm just finishing Great Expectations still. I don't, mm. I think I mentioned last time that I was reading that. I'm not sure. Um, it, one of those books, hopefully I'm not repeating myself too much, but briefly, one of those books that I read when I was a child and pretended like I understood it and pretended <laughs> like I liked it. And um, I'm rereading it now and listening to it. And I am enjoying it so much. It's such a, it's a, a simple and complex story at the same time. And it's also twisted and innocent at the same time. Um, mm. Dickens really creates these very um, interesting characters in Miss Havisham and Pip. And it's just, it's interesting reading as an adult reading a coming of age story because I think I was coming of age when I read it and so I didn't understand the like you're you're sort of reading through these cycles of immaturity that he's mm -hmm. going through and mm -hmm. um, seeing him try to discern when people are being honest mm. and when they're just trying to get something from him or when they just have another agenda um, and yeah so I'm I think I'm 35 chapters in or something and I, I'm just I'm thoroughly enjoying it this time and I I don't honestly remember how it ends so yeah nobody write me and tell me um, <laughs> uh, but I am excited to to see what happens with Pip as we go on I have a vague memory of a few things um, so we'll see if I was right but cool that's what I, I've been reading I think I read that when I was a freshman in high school and I don't even know if it was the full one. It may have been like an abridged version um, that we did in our English class, but I remember not liking it, <laughs> mm. but maybe that was because I didn't understand it then either. So, well, I think it's a, frankly, I don't understand why they assign it in school when you're young, because I think it is, I don't know. There are just certain books that I, I read as a middle schooler slash high schooler that I just don't think I was old enough to really comprehend mm. and um and then there were certain books that we did read and I loved them and it was like the it was perfect for that age mm -hmm. um like Tale of Two Cities or mm -hmm. some of those mm -hmm. other books that like really struck me at that time but yeah I did enjoy was, Tale of Two Cities yeah beautifully written I mm -hmm. love A Tale of Two Cities I want to read it again actually it's on my list to reread yeah. So anyway, I, yeah, I've really been enjoying that. And I also started reading, um, oh goodness, Flannery O'Connor's, mm. uh, uh, what is it called? I'm losing my mind. A good man is hard to find. Gotcha. And I started that ages ago and then I ended up reading her first novel instead. Mm. And I, and I told you guys on the podcast, I was not, a, I wasn't a fan of, mm -hmm. um, 
of the last book of hers that I read, but this one is a little more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. It's still not enjoyable. There's mm-hmm. like a murder of a family of mm-hmm. seven at the is beginning. Is that the one where there's the um the grandma yes and the the misfit the, or whatever yeah the okay. grandmother the grandmother's traveling with like her son and his family mm-hmm. and the misfit is this criminal who's on the run basically and it's pretty much the grandmother's fault that the dad ends up crashing their vehicle and it overturns and the mom gets thrown out and Anyway, they're waiting. They're like in the middle of nowhere in the country and they're waiting for help. And I'm not spoiling anything because this is in like the first chapter or two. But um, yeah, the misfit comes along and they think he's going to help them. And I think she writes it really well because you think that he's going to help them as well. But then the grandmother says, oh, I recognize who you are. And she says oh, and she calls his name. Out. And he's yeah. like, that's a mistake. You will have wished you didn't say that. Mm-hmm. So they end up separating the family out. First the men, then the women. The First the boys and then the girls and then the grandmother. And they end up shooting all of them. Mm-hmm. And it's – there's like – I'm still thinking about it and it's still kind of reeling just from these first few chapters that I've read because um, there's this really interesting conversation that the grandma tries to have with him before she dies because she's mm-hmm. the last to die. Mm-hmm. And she's like, do you know Jesus? Do you lo- like he loves you? And she's like trying to convince him of like his innate goodness. Mm-hmm. Like God created you to be good and mm-hmm. you don't have to be this this evil criminal character you that's not your dignity that's not your identity and you kind of get the sense like I said O'Connor wrote the scene really well because you really feel like he's considering it and like he's going back and forth kind of Mm -hmm. but you also feel like he's kind of a sociopath and he's just doing what he's doing um so in the end he she says something that sets him off kind of and and he just shoots her yeah Um, but I don't know she captured this in both of her books what I've noticed so far is that she captures really well this like um kind of the depravity of humanity Mm -hmm. but also that like unsatisfaction like Mm -hmm. there it's so like there's such a lack of something there like Mm-hmm. it's clear that there's something better that these people should be searching for and living for and she really captures like that human desire for something better um which I think is what she wanted too because like in her last book that I was telling everybody about several episodes ago um she's like calling to attention this false faith like people who are false preachers and people yeah. who are like carding faith because they have an agenda or they want to make money or whatever so mm-hmm. yeah that's another one where I'm like I'm I yeah I wouldn't say I'm enjoying but I am <laughs> interested and I'm learning and I'm I am enjoying seeing her perspective of these things so yeah I need to read it I've heard about that story because there's um, a book that Bishop Barron wrote called The Priority of Christ. Mm-hmm. And in the introduction, he uses that exact scene, that story. Oh, really? To explain his thesis. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and it's really fascinating kind of how he interprets it as almost like a, not a parable, but like a, maybe a parable. I don't know. Yeah. It's sort of a, a an image of a concept that happens between two groups of people in our society and the grandma represents one and the misfit represents the other. And it's yeah, like this really interesting like play between the two of them. But anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been I've been meaning to read it. I've been meaning to read a couple of her short stories um, that have yeah. been specifically recommended because, yeah, she is one of those that is, I think, got some really profound things to say. But I feel like you have to 
enter into uh, something that you can grasp first and then go deeper and deeper, you know, because she can be pretty yeah. rough. Pretty I rough feel like re- reading Wise Blood first really prepped me for this book mm-hmm. because I lost all sense of expectation gotcha. for what Flannery yeah. was going to offer me. That's a good point. Yeah. And she kind of like shook me. So I was like, this book might disappoint me or this book might not be at all what I'm expecting. Yeah. And that's okay. I just, my sister, um, Gabby said to me before I started it, she's like, don't expect it to be what you think it's going to be. Like you hear the title, like a good man is hard to find. And you think, oh, like cute story about a girl. (laughs) No such thing as a cute story about a girl in Flannery (laughs) O'Connor. Right. And so it's like, yeah, um, I went in knowing that it was not going to be a love story or something. So, well, we'll see. Yeah. I don't know. know. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, Anyway. I guess uh, we should jump into Chesterton now. I guess so. Oh, yeah. Chesterton. Right. Eh, we love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, our summary. The second phase of the trial begins as Dr. Pym, in a rather unclear manner, attempts to accuse Innocent Smith of burglary. The letter he presents as evidence is from a conservative curate in Hoxton, who accuses Smith of leading him and his more socialist contemporary up and down a confusing maze of secret paths, a ladder, and, a, and garden walls, only to reveal that he intended to burgle a house in the name of socialism. The curate is appalled by this and dissociates himself with his younger friend and from Mr. Smith, and from Smith, climbing back down the wall and retracing his steps back home. As he is leaving, he notices the two men climbing up onto the roof of a house, and he assumes that they are going to follow through with Smith's burglary plans. The defense, however, then presents a second letter, a letter from the younger curate who follows Smith the rest of his way across the roofs of Hof. The defense, however, then presents a second letter, a letter from the younger curate who follows Smith the rest of his way across the roofs of Hoxton and intends to commit burglary with him. He details the thoughts going through his head which begin with a revolutionary tone of violent socialism and end with the help of Santa Claus in the, in the opposite moral conviction that burglary is wrong. It is only just as he realizes his own, own moral conviction that Smith bursts through the chimney pot at the top of the house and breaks his way inside. The young curate, Percy, is now in terror of being found out, but pretty soon after they have entered and poked around for a bit, Smith reveals that the house is in fact his own home, and he introduces Percy to his wife. The startled Percy is then invited for drinks and spends the rest of the evening discussing Smith's life and philosophy, namely the belief that the only way he can truly appreciate what he has is to force himself to see it from a new and astonishingly different angle. I adore this. (laughs) I think this is what Chesterton does so well, is that he he forces you to see things from a new and astonishingly different angle. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I feel with so much of Chesterton's writing that he, you know, you'll read some of his prose, you know, some of his own, you know, journalism or philosophy or whatever it is that he's writing. And then you'll read his fiction like Father Brown or like Man Alive and you see it spelled out, but in a picture, you know, so it's like, you can kind of see this concrete, really parable we were just talking about with Flannery O'Connor like um of some deeper reality that he's trying to get across um and so it's almost like he does that in his fiction writing where you're kind of seeing the reality from a different angle than maybe you're used to um or he'll exaggerate something so much these, mm-hmm. these ridiculous circumstances but it helps you see a truth that's like very clear I yeah. don't know so is and every author who does um who writes a story does reveals in a different way like they reveal Mm -hmm. information in a different style or way and he I I feel like captures this really well in his detective fiction but like Mm -hmm. also in this story which kind of has detective elements Mm -hmm. um, especially with this trial he he does the the he always has those characters who don't see the whole picture Mm -hmm. so the first curate who 
sees only half of the story and then assumes the rest of it mm-hmm. is one of the devices that Chesterton uses to create suspense in this part of the story or to mm-hmm. reveal just how ridiculous it is in the end or just how truthful yeah. the whole thing really is in the end um and I love that he does that he does that in Father Brown as well like mm-hmm. where he'll have a character who doesn't quite see the full picture and that's really that's really us I mean it's us reading through yeah. and trying to discern what is really going on um so the beginning of this chapter kind of starts out with a summary of what has just happened in the trial. So last last chapter, they were defending Smith against murder um, <laughs> or charges of murder. And so you have Inglewood kind of summing that up. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. There was a line in the first page of this chapter where Inglewood said, in each case, the scare was so wholesome. So he's talking about him like shooting his gun, but like missing on purpose. Um, the scare was so wholesome that the victim himself has dated from it as from a new birth. Smith, so far from being a madman, is rather a mad doctor. He walks the world curing frenzies and not distri- uh, distributing them. So yeah. I liked that idea of like people dating their lives as from a new birth. I was just thinking about baptism, you know, just thinking about like yeah. the Easter vigil and everything and how, I don't know, like we it's cool that he's providing these moments for people that are like earth shattering. I don't know. Like it's totally like a baptism, you know, like a, a yeah. awakening or a, I don't know. Just like yeah. There have, bit. there have been some saints too. We had a Liz Kelly on, um, on our show today on our radio show. And she was talking about all of these like amazing women saints. Um, awesome. She, she just came out with a book called love like a saint uh, would highly recommend. I'm going to get my hands on a copy, but basically she wanted to focus on like, um, so some women who are canonized saints and then like some women who may or may not have a cause, but just like lived these incredible lives. But one of the women that she talked about in the book, um, whose name is completely escaping me right now, she dated her birth, like as the day she came into at the church like the day she oh, became wow, a christian yeah. and like would celebrate her birthday on that day every on year her baptism day which is I love it like it makes sense i mean i actually have met a lot of people as i've gotten older who celebrate their day of baptism that yeah, was not I have a too. thing that i Me ever neither. did growing up but i love it i love the idea of it so this is really crazy my brother um so my last name is Kraus, which is this big like German linebacker name, I feel like, you know, and my brother's this big guy. <laughs> and so we always would joke like, okay, whenever you grow up and you get married and you have kids, like you're going to have twins and you're going to name them Timothy and Titus because it just sounds great that they're going to be linebackers like Timothy and Titus Kraus, like what great linebacker yeah. name. So we would yeah. always joke about this and stuff. Well, a couple of years back, my brother and I were, um, well, actually it was when it was last year when he got married, he had to get all of his baptismal records and sacramental records and everything for right. his marriage certificate and, uh, looked at the date and lo and behold, his baptism date was the feast of Timothy and Titus. No way. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and we were like, what? All <laughs> right. I know. Let amazing. me know if they get pregnant with twins. I, know. <laughs> I am here for it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so fun. Yeah. yeah. But so, it's funny because there's this whole discussion about birthdays, right? Like with yeah. Warner. Yeah. Um, in this book that it's, uh, first of all, I love that Michael Moon is offering to do another surgery on Warner because he admits that Smith has failed in his doctoring <laughs> in this yeah. particular instance yeah. because Warner is still like not having it. Um, but then he asks him like, okay, well, right before he shot at you, what was the discussion you were having? And he has this whole discussion about how he doesn't celebrate his birthday. Um, and I don't know. I just thought that that was really, it's like simple, but it's really profound. Like if you don't believe that this life is, ultimately good and meaningful then why would you celebrate your birthday yeah yeah yeah. um so it's just like that whole like innocent smith representing this like anti-nihilist view you know yeah um and warner warner being just like 
whatever it doesn't matter you know yeah Um, which is a kind of the attitude of a lot of people today as well that mm -hmm. I mean people like celebrating their birthdays because they like getting presents and also attention and all of that stuff so like I don't think the celebration of birthdays has gone away but like that idea of nothing really meaning anything all that important yeah like I I actually don't understand that view when people say that they believe in like some sort of moral system but it doesn't seem to be grounded in anything like Mm -hmm. with Warner it's or I guess it's grounded in science but why would you do anything good if there wasn't actual like this actual god who had set up this moral system for us it doesn't doesn't make sense to me if I didn't believe in God or in like the morality that he has provided for Mm -hmm. us and called us to then I would probably live my life a lot differently yeah I think there's I think there's something legitimately um because morality is kind of like the ground of like how we were made to operate Mm -hmm. you know what I mean as human beings that I think there's people who don't believe in God who still are like, well, but I'll be happier if I live this Mm. way. But I think it only goes to a certain point. I think there with, without God, without, um, love that goes beyond just kind of this like contentedness, um, there's no real sacrifice, you know, there may be sacrifice in certain instances, but when things are not, when the reward is not very clear, um, why do that? You know, I think that there's, there's a lot of, um, like the depths of love and the depths of mercy and the depths of, um, I don't know, just like human experience in general, that we miss out on just kind of maintaining. Cause like I said, I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who don't believe in God who are still like, oh yeah, but I should treat people nicely because like, it's clear that if I treat people that way, most of the time they're going to kind of respond the same way or whatever. And so, um, yeah, you know, definitely. And like, I, I think it is in that, in the more subtle things that it gets more difficult, right? Like, yes, that makes sense. If I treat somebody kindly, they'll probably treat me back kindly. Mm -hmm. But even that doesn't seem like, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't seem selfless to me because yeah. you know that there's a positive outcome when you do it for yourself, mm-hmm. which honestly is a part of the, one of the joys of like being a good person is that it feels good to do good things for mm-hmm. other people. Like you mm-hmm. feel good about yourself when you give something to somebody else. So mm-hmm. you're right. That is, that is like an innate thing in people that they, they feel good when they do good things and like mm-hmm. they do have some sense of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for helping me. But I, <laughs> but I think that there's, like I said, there's also the going, f- there's no further like depths, you know what I mean? Which is, yeah. is a problem, you know? Yeah. So whenever push comes to shove, whenever it's difficult for me all of a sudden, and I don't really see this clear outcome of goodness for myself, mm-hmm. and it's like, why bother, you know? Yeah. Um, why go through that? Why? Yeah. So anyways, um, Let's see. I thought there was a really interesting Pim and and Moon and Inglewood are going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And every time they're talking, they're kind of talking past each other. They're not getting each other. They're not comprehending what's happening. I would argue that Moon is probably comprehending more of what Pim is trying to say, but not agreeing with it. Um, 100%. And I think Pim is just completely like flabbergasted by all of the stuff that Michael Moon is trying to say. But I I think it's like, Pim is honestly giving these serious opinions that he has about <laughs> yeah. people with conditions or like criminals or whatever. Uh-huh. And Moon is like, you're a joke, kind yeah. of. Like, I think he's I think Moon is taking it in and he's recognizing the ridiculousness of it. And he's yeah. kind of spitting back ridiculousness to kind of almost like make fun of it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it's like, he's like- going to catch on at any moment that I am making fun of you right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he does at one point, there's that yeah. point in the last chapter when he's like, okay, I admit you're funny. Um, but <laughs> the- <laughs> oh, the goal of life. Okay. You're funny. Yeah. But um, on 
one of the, let's see, page 125, he said, it was typical of this topsy-turvy private trial that all the eloquent extras, all the rhetoric or digression on either side was exasperating and unintelligible to the other. Moon could not make head or tail of the solemnity of a new civilization. Pym could not make head or tail of the gaiety of an old one. Mm. I thought that was, that was really good. That you're, they're operating out of two completely different worldviews. Yeah. Um, so they keep talking past each other. They're not able to kind of get through to the other one. Yeah. I like how he presents the evidence in, in these trial chapters because the uh, the illustrious Dr. Pym and Dr. Warner present their evidence first. And mm-hmm. it always seems like, wow, this seems like pretty damning evidence. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, um, the the funny thing is that like Chesterton was such a an understanding and kind person and yet he's clearly making fun of certain types of people or like people who get into certain habits of things and one of the types of people that he kind of um that not kind of that he is making fun of is is the first curate what were your thoughts about like that character that he wrote yeah I was kind of cracking up reading at first you're kind of like following him and then um, I laughed out loud whenever he said, I never offer my congregation any advice about voting, except in cases in which I feel strongly that they're likely to make er- an erroneous selection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Is that only when? Uh, yeah. <laughs> o- only when I feel very strongly about it. Yeah. It was a yeah. little too close to home in an election year. Um, I feel yeah. like there's been a lot of people that are a lot of religious, you know, leaders that were saying things that maybe they shouldn't have said from the pulpit, you know? Yeah. Um, and a lot so. not saying anything. Yeah. It yeah. was like, it's so bizarre. We had not a whole lot of in between. It's like, oh, I, I yeah. understand it's hard to lead a flock and mm-hmm. it's hard to figure out what you're going to say, but I agree. Yeah. It was dissatisfying. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I was, he's like, I feel like he's just a very classic. Um, there was a, what was the other quote though from the other curate um he was talking about the older so there's what are their names let's see you got percy's the younger curate and who's the older one john hawkins ah yes hawkins okay so hawkins the more conservative one um when percy talks about him he says uh he is a perfect gentleman that is his complete he does not impose his creed but simply his class he never said a word of religion in the whole of his damnable address he simply said all the things that his brother the major would have said Hmm. and I feel like that's really true sometimes of people who I don't know when people are religious but they have sort of lost the heart of what it means to be religious it's really easy to kind of call yourself conservative but then slip into just being what am I trying to say like your real religion isn't the faith but it's whatever class you're in or whatever group you're in that's like or the identity for yourself that you've created right so like for him it's this sort of like gentlemanly upper class like society and he's he's very much about his image more so than actually like ministering to people or right but he calls that his like these gentleman characteristics as like being a faithful person like oh he's a gentleman and like later he says what is the um oh gosh he says something about that too oh he he's talking about percy so in the when hawkins is talking about percy he says uh raymond percy a priest of god and what was worse a gentleman was crawling up after him you know like yeah. he, he was talking yeah. about him following smith onto the roofs to go burgle this house and he says first of all a priest of god like oh it's unbecoming of a priest of god to go and steal stuff like duh right but then he's yeah. like, but what's worse a gentleman like almost like it's like worse it's so improper he's sullying the name of gentleman than he is sullying yeah. the name of a priest of god you know what i mean it's yeah. like that's yeah he really shows i think his true colors there where he's like totally he really cares more about being a gentleman than he does about being a priest yeah you know yeah yeah and 
And the, well, the entire time when um, Percy is following Innocent on the rooftops and things, and he's having like that whole internal dialogue about um, what they're about to do, which he thinks is to burgle a house. Um, you know, it's really a, a irreplaceable experience for him and a very useful one because he at first is like gung-ho like yeah we're gonna go burgle a house like, like and he's yeah <laughs> he's like kind of get swept <laughs> yeah kind of swept away by this like kind of romantic idea of it and then as they approach and it says like by the time they reach the house that he says they're to break into he like with the sinking stomach realizes like no this is wrong it's wrong to steal like it's wrong to break into a house and like I feel like that was important because yeah. sometimes we think that we will do the right thing mm -hmm. when we're in a situation because we claim to be Christian or we claim to be moral people and um it's good to to have that tested sometimes. Yeah. And to really know in your heart, in your soul, mm -hmm. yes, that what I what I said to be true previously, what I just stated to be true, I still won't do now because I like this is wrong and and I'm saying no to it like in the face mm -hmm. of temptation. So I feel like it was actually a quite a big moment for like he brought this curate to life by yeah. forcing him to have this moment of uh, questioning the morality of what they were about to do and and he had the realization that like even if he personally didn't take anything from this house he was involved in breaking into it and mm -hmm. he didn't want to be involved in that but he felt right. like he, it had gone so far right I think it's an important thing or it's one way that I think God can use when we do things that are wrong um, like obviously he doesn't want us to do things that are wrong, but when we do do things that are wrong, it's like, he can use that now as like this very vivid reminder of like why he told us not to do that thing in the first place. So it's like when the kid, you know, parents tell them like, don't touch the hot stove, don't touch the hot stove, don't touch the hot stove. And it's like this vague idea in their mind of what that might be if they touch the hot stove, but then you have the kid that actually touches it and like, Mm -hmm. they're definitely not touching that again. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's like they have this concrete experience of like what this really means, like actually going through it, like with their body. I feel like this chapter was a lot of about like putting things to, to work in the, in the flesh, like, and, yeah. and realizing what that means and kind of shaking you out of your head. And we were talking about that last chapter too, that we can get so easily caught up in our own heads and about our philosophies and things. And like the intellectual life is important, but we also have to keep our feet on the ground and yeah. we have to be experiencing things in the flesh in order to really see the fullness of that truth, you know, make sure that we're not yeah. kind of arguing ourselves into oblivion. <laughs> yeah. And are we so. just stating a creed or mm. are we living it? Yeah. Yeah. Like we can say all the prayers in the world mm -hmm. and state all of the things in the world, but really our actions and how we live our lives determines whether or not we are actually saying that creed in honesty, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so. I think, I think Smith's whole game is to force people to live the creed that they profess with their lips. You know, he's forcing um, his professor Eames to live the creed of nihilism by threatening to kill him. You know, he's yeah. forcing um, Percy here to live the, the creed in some way of socialism, you know, that all parties should just be for yeah. whoever needs it, you know, or whatever. Um, yeah, and exactly. so he's kind of forcing him to live out some aspect of socialism um, on a very like concrete and exaggerated, like following it to its logical conclusions kind of, you know, yes. um, and then when he actually has to go through it, he's like, wait a minute, there's something not right here, you know, and right. it's like there's some, there's some things that I like that Percy kind of explains his background because he says, um, basically he was like, Hawkins until he moved to Hoxton um, and he saw the plight of the poor and when he saw the plight of the poor he was angry for them and realized that before he said like I had treated the church militant as if it were the church pageant 
Hoxton mm. cures that. Then I realized for 1800 years, the church militant had not been a pageant, but a riot, a suppressed riot. So then he like is kind of internalizing these ideas of like socialism and like rising up against the man and like all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and he, there's something true there. Like there's something true that, that like, it's, it's easy for some people to call themselves religious and forget the plight of the poor. And that's a problem. Right. And he saw yeah. that, but his conclusions were not quite right either. And that's what I think Smith yeah. is trying to show him is that there's still something missing here, you know? And I, I think poor. Chesterton has a lot of sympathy for that, mm-hmm. for, for socialists yeah. or for people who claim socialists be, to be socialists because taking care of the poor is such a responsibility of of people who can't people who can well everybody's called to take care of each other in some way but like we are called as religious people to take care of the poor and you're right it's a serious thing if you ignore that responsibility right um and so he he sympathizes more so with the man who's like well i want to do something about this even Mm -hmm. if that that socialism is so flawed in how it attempts to achieve Mm -hmm. caring for all men Mm -hmm. like the ideal right is that people who have enough or too much are taking care of the people who don't have enough like Mm -hmm. and in their generosity everyone's needs are met but Mm -hmm. this is you're right he helps him to find the problems with like with this uh creed that he's professing but also Mm -hmm. to realize that like it it doesn't take away his his love of the poor or his yeah like it makes him more of a priest and like more of a good person to go through this experience parts of his convictions are true when parts of them maybe aren't you know it's like I feel like we try so much this is just I don't know I feel like one of my soapboxes in general (laughs) as a person is like um we have these false dichotomies where it's like this or this and it's like well but there's elements of truth here and there's elements of truth here and like how can mm. we find the good in both of these things and like bring them together into something better you know and I think that's what Chesterton was attempting to do with his distributism you know yeah. we talked about that before yeah um however practical it is is another question but kind of laziness that forces mm-hmm. us into those black and white worlds yeah I think so too yeah because we have to be intellectually honest and Mm. we have to put the energy and work in to like come to like to analyze everything and come to a messy conclusion kind of Mm. like where you're pulling from different things it's easier to say it's black and white and I'm choosing one of those Mm -hmm. things you know so it's he's not a burglar yeah (laughs) I love that what made Percy realize that ceiling was wrong was Santa Claus yes (laughs) I laughed so hard I was like really but it makes sense because he's like wow I'm about to go down a chimney like Santa Claus but like little kids Santa Claus brings gifts yeah Yeah. because he brings gifts but I'm about to steal stuff and then all I could think of was the Grinch Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He goes down and steals the tree and everything. It's so perfect because Chesterton loves Christmas and he loves like the fun. Like he loves yeah. all of the fun of um like child childhood stories and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he mentions it's- all the like Harlequinades and stuff too that he was thinking about how like this whole scene of like going down the chimney pot and everything is just like very. Yeah. It reminds him of of the Harlequin you know, with like the policemen and the sausages and whatever. I love my favorite part of the story of them, like entering into this house is when his wife comes in. Oh, I know. And And she's she's, just so nonchalant. (laughs) Yeah. Like she's just used to how he is or, you know, whatever. But when they go into the house and he's just starting to figure out, like, I love when he starts talking about, like, he's all sad and he's like, like Smith is all sad and he's like, yeah, it's like, I always try to do something different, but then like, whatever I do, the owner of the house has to do. <laughs> it's like super confusing. And you're like, what is happening? This yeah. is some weird, like magical yeah. spell. And then you're like, oh wait, he is the owner of the house. But I love the question that he asks, um, the Percy, the curate cries, you know, the house then like, you know what, like this house is about. And then 
he answered, it says too well, he answered with a sadness so strange as to have something eerie about it. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the whole point that he knows his own house too well. And he wants to unknow it so that he can like re-know it in a different way um, in order to appreciate it. And like, that's, that's like the whole point. And I think there's something so profound there, especially when even more, more than our things and our possessions, like our house and our stuff and whatever, Mm. but the people in our lives, I feel like we think, oh, I've got them figured out, you know, or like, oh, I know this person really, really well, you know, like I know them inside and out. And it's when we claim that familiarity that we sometimes lose the mystery and we're not able to actually see the fullness. Like we think that our eyes are wide open, but in fact, they're narrowed and, and blinded that we're like not able to see the full beauty and reality of the thing or the person that's like right in front of us. So like with the house coming in through the trap door in the ceiling is like something that he had never experienced before but it was the same house that he's been in, you know? Right. Um, so it's like, how can we like look at those people in our lives and like those things that we have from just a slightly different angle to recognize, like, I actually don't own this person. Like I don't have this person totally figured out. Like I didn't create them. Like there's so much more to them than I can even know or see. And that's something to celebrate, not something to be like upset about. I don't know. Yeah. He wants to be in awe of the beautiful things in his life constantly right including his wife including his home like he recognizes their value how valuable those things are mm-hmm. but he also recognizes how easy it is to not like you said not appreciate to become too familiar and so he finds a way to make things new to be in awe again to be in appreciation of those things again it's beautiful yeah it makes me want to, it makes me want to, well, I, I feel like this is kind of captured in like kind of ashamed of this reference, but like, you know, how in movies and stuff, sometimes couples will like pretend to not know each other and oh. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like meet each other at the bar again or like whatever. And yeah. like, there is something in that, uh, seeing like, seeing a person as if you've never seen them before Mm -hmm. and uh yeah being kind of being in awe of them and like having the fun of meeting them again for the first time Mm -hmm. it makes me want to like go home after work one day and ring my doorbell (laughs) rather than using my key to get in and like have my husband answer and like say can I come in um (laughs) but see you (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm here to visit and maybe to stay. We'll see. I love it. Yeah, I just, I'm thinking, I'm reading some more of these quotes from this chapter. um, Just talking about like having to do something with your body in order to recognize that the thing you've been thinking is not quite right. Um, He said, while his brain accepted the black creed, his very body rebelled against it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, really relatable at least to me like when I've been thinking some things in my head and then something happens in my life concretely and then I'm like wait <laughs> that there's something off about that you know yeah there's a disconnect here yeah yeah and uh yeah just being able to cut through like all the talk too because like Pim and Warner right they're just like going on and on and on and on and on about all this like their theories about yeah, people theories about and stuff life. And- yeah Michael pokes fun at that by talking about all the different, uh, like crimes that like, they're going to explain away somehow. Yeah. Talks about them explaining away like piracy or like (laughs) what was it? Piracy on the high seas or something. I don't remember, but anyways. Yeah. And just, I don't know. There's this quote that said, um, he made himself a kind of fanatic of the joy of life. He cut across all the associations of serious-minded men. He was gay, but by no means careless. His practical jokes were more in earnest than verbal ones. So it's like the the concreteness of it cuts across that just kind of cerebral whatever, or even verbal. 
Um, he could argue, he could stand there. Smith could be a guy who sits in a bar like Michael Moon and argues with people, his philosophy. Um, or he could be a lawyer in a courtroom who is arguing his philosophy, but he recognizes that the words are not going to cut through to people as much as these concrete experiences are. Mm -hmm. And so he like creates these concrete experiences, which is just really over the top, but also like genius, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Well, wonderful. Um, I think we've covered the main things in this chapter. I, I'm really enjoying how one by one, all of these charges against Smith are just being knocked down. Mm -hmm. Murder was not real or wasn't true. Um, burglary is not true. Now we're on to insanity. Mm -hmm. But also uh, bigamy, right? Yes. Because oh very, yes, and bigamy. Very end of the chapter, Moses Gould like kind of comes out of nowhere and is like, um, yeah, cool. In fact, is it holy that he's trying to say? It's like O L Y. Yeah. Holy, holy, holy. holy. Like, but he's like almost like making fun of it because it's it's like, oh, we've tied all this defense right up in a nice bow. We've proven that he didn't actually burgle anything. It's, it was his own house. Ha ha, isn't that funny? He's actually innocent. But then Moses Gould is like um was I the only one that realized that in this story he has a wife and yet he's trying to marry this yeah great yeah who yes. is like not married so like is he like cheating on his wife like yeah it's like hello we need to answer like, this question now yeah so yeah. he brings it up and you almost like forgot about Mary Gray for a split second because you're like oh his wife how funny blah 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 and then you're like wait a minute <laughs> you so, have a wife yeah yeah so now it's like wait this is this is interesting um, and then the chapter ends again, just like wonderfully when Moses Gould is kind of making this new accusation of bigamy. Um, it says that like sort of Smith's brow is like furled where he's just kind of like, like upset or some almost like upset by what Moses is saying. But then it says he slipped a paper yes. through yes. another hole that he had made and whatever he was making with his hands and finally then, worked out and then he was relieved and like the yeah. the brow unfurrowed and everything was fine he wasn't stressed <laughs> out about what was being said he yeah. was stressed out by his paper project oh my gosh it was just such a perfect so ending to all of that like he's still blissfully unaware of this entire trial and everything that is happening around him or at least he's acting that way I love it He's confident in his, yeah. what he does and in what he's done. So he has no reason to be stressed if he believes that he's been doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Well, wonderful. Um, what are you grateful for this week? I am grateful for Easter. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm grateful for, for my church, for my parish, just like spent a lot of time there this week, obviously. And um, just like such good people. And I'm really, really grateful for the community there and just my friends that are, that are all around and are supportive. And I just feel like with Easter and it, things being like, you know, new and spring and all this stuff, there's a lot of like movement and change that's been happening in my life, in the lives of a lot of my friends around me. And I feel like it's really hopeful. I feel like for a long time, there was this like weighted COVID static, like, darkness, you know, that was kind of like hanging over a lot of people in my life and it was causing some big problems, um, for them. But I, I felt with the coming of Easter sort of in tandem with that, there's been a lot of like shifting and moving and changing, and we can kind of start to see things like breaking open that had been closed for a long time, you know, or things moving forward that had felt stagnant, you know? So I'm just really grateful for, whatever God is doing and all that because the end has not been revealed yet for a lot of us but I think there's there's a lot of good stuff that's about to happen so grateful yeah. for that wonderful How about you um I am I'm grateful I, I felt my baby kick for the first time <laughs> on Sunday on Easter yeah and oh my gosh that's awesome yeah it was like it's alive yeah there's a person in there um yeah it was kind I of bizarre it. david and i were just quietly sitting together 
um, visiting on Easter afternoon. We had been with the family all day, so we kind of snuck away a little bit just to talk. And I said, I think the baby just moved. <laughs> it was like light and um, kind of difficult to explain like mm -hmm. how it feels, but um, pretty special. And then yeah. I haven't really felt it much since then. They say that you feel it more in the 20s when you're in mm. between 20 and 24 weeks. So very exciting stuff to know that there's a little baby in there. It makes it all worth it. Definitely. Oh, that's Great. so exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, next week uh, we will be covering book two, chapter three, The Round Road or The Desertion Charge. Um, so until then, you guys can find us online. Instagram at Pints with Chesterton, website pintswithchesterton.com. Our email address is pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. Um, may you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers.